1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy.
0: Hey, friends, I'm Alicia. We are so glad you're here today. We're going to have some fun today with our stories. We got some big hot ones. Our theme this week, mm-hmm. burning down the house by the talking heads. Kind of fit with both of them, but I am going to bring up a quote from my Trashy Divorces profile this week, Joan Crawford, which is coming for you in the second half of this episode. There's a terrific quote from her that I think sums it all up. From 1954 in an interview with Hollywood Reporter, Joan Crawford says, Love is a fire, but whether it is going to warm your hearth or burn your house down, you can never tell. Before we get into the legendary Joan Crawford and her marital woes, Stacy, who are you bringing us this week?
1: I have the marital woes of the couple from HGTV's Flip or Flop who divorced... A few years back and announced this week that the, they're ending their show. This is Christina Hake and Tarek el Still on HGTV, just in
0: different capacities. Watch out. You might get what you're after in this episode. But right now, before we get to it, I got to pull out this magic mirror that is definitively not on fire. Not on fire. Let's give some big shout out and thanks to our newest Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Divorces. We are so grateful for every single one of you. Thanks so much for joining us there. Evan E, Paige W, Felicia D, Martha P, Melissa G, Melissa, not G. I don't know what the next Melissa's letter is. I don't think Melissa and Melissa are related, but we had two Melissa's. I love it when that happens, as well as Jane. Thanks y'all so much for your support over there. Thanks for coming back to listen to this exciting episode. Stacy, what have we got to do? Probably we got to go,
1: go, go, burn a house down. (laughs) Don't burn houses down. That's arson.
0: We're just going to go, go, go. Okay. So, Stacey, today your tale is filled with all sort of flips and flops. Flips and flops. Flips and flops.
1: Friends in the waning days of the year 1994, a new television network muscled its way into America's cable TV guides. It was HGTV, home and garden television, and in nearly three decades of its run so far, it's also muscled into our eyeballs, our hearts, and how we think about organize, remodel, or construct our homes. HGTV presenters and shows have taught us how to shop for a home, how to decorate it, how to landscape it, Figure out if a home has good bones or not. Shop for a beach house and how to renovate the beach house with good bones once you find it. Some credit or blame HGTV for the 21st century's emphasis on open concept layouts. In Vice, Hannah Smothers wrote, These days when you walk into a room, you're actually in several rooms. The popularity of open floor plans has erased virtually all interior walls. Rooms with doors that close are practically a thing of the past. Open floor plans are the result of nearly every home renovation on HGTV. Apparently, as some HGTV executives once told Rhonda Kaysen, a New York Times contributor, the reason why is that men love to see a little sledgehammer action. Quote, Oh, wow. (laughs) So this is Kaysen, still from the Smothers piece. I spoke with HGTV executives, Kaysen said on NPR at the end of 2019, and the reason that they're so big on open concept is because it gets the male viewers, like guys like to watch sledgehammers and like taking out walls. She added that HGTV decision makers feel that straight men won't sit down with their girlfriends and wives for an hour of tchotchkes and bathroom upgrades if they can't catch a little sledgehammer action along the way.
0: Seriously, that's the reason? That
1: open concept mm-hmm. happened? Is the thing, yep. Wow. Um, yeah, Cason continues. It's for TV. It's not for, like, what's in the best interest of the house, necessarily. I mean, I like I like some open concept. I do. It's, it feels more spacious.
0: That anyway, is some trashy enlightenment right there.
1: Dudes like sledgehammers. The network has also gifted us with ample and sometimes a little problematic television personalities, whose job is sort of a cross between a... Reality TV star slash host, a television presenter, and a professional who is the subject of a documentary. It's kind of a weird blend, right? There are Chip and Joanna Gaines, making Waco, Texas, entirely unaffordable to live in, one gorgeous rehab at a time. (laughs) There are the Property Brothers, Drew and Jonathan Scott, two Canadian real estate twins who activate their powers to help homebuyers get into an almost perfect home at the right price, and then reno it to perfection for them. It's actually pretty deeply satisfying television to watch. There are no stakes for the viewer, but you really can pick up cool ideas, you know, watching HGTV shows. And in the end, you're treated not just to something gorgeous, a home, a garden, whatever, but also the delight of the normies that the hosts are working with. But then there's Christina Hack and Tarek El Moussa, up until this week, the hosts of the network's Flip or Flop which takes a slightly different tack. When their show began in 2013, they were a married pair of real estate professionals who had started flipping Los Angeles area homes when the market tanked in the Great Recession of 2008. Their show is actually by HGTV standards a little more stressful than the others because it's a married couple buying homes, sometimes in genuinely terrible condition, sometimes sight unseen, and then navigating all the couple dynamics while also assisting their construction crew in the renovation and eventual sale, you hope, of the home. Let's meet this couple whose reality TV careers have outlasted their marriage. Both are California babies, with Tarek joining the world as a Leo, uh, August 21st, 1981 in Long Beach, and Christina showing up two years later on July 9th, 1983, making her a cancer.
0: Oh, um, Sun and Moon. What a combo right there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
1: The story the network promotes is that Tarek got his real estate license at the ripe old age of 21, and he and Christina met while both were working in the real estate industry sometime in the 2000s. By 2008, they were ready to launch their own firm when, lo and behold, the global economy suddenly imploded in the Great Recession. They say they had been living in a $6,000 a month house, blinks several times, (laughs) and were forced to downsize to a $700 a month apartment. Blinks again. Was there such a thing in 2008 in Southern California? $700 apartment? Skeptical. I had friends in the Bay Area at that time who had like 19 roommates crammed into a place because... You couldn't get a closet for $700. They also got married in 2009, which I don't know. Is that the next logical thing? Like. Hey baby, our business is going bust and we have to leave our beautiful home for a postage stamp-sized apartment. Drops to one knee. (laughs) Marry me. I suspect their origin story was heavily curated by HGTV publicists. Anyway, with millions of families defaulting on mortgages made unaffordable by mounting job losses, they, along with a business partner, had the idea to start picking up distressed properties, reno, resell. This is flipping houses. Although some of the promo shots for the show I've seen also show Tarek wearing flip-flops at construction sites, which is just dangerous, man. You can't do that, man. Even I know that. Foot tunics. Use them.
0: I hate Uh, shoes.
1: Stepping on a nail. I'm a southern
0: girl. You yell at me all the time for my lack of footwear, but even I wear footwear on a construction site.
1: Right. Anyway, I don't know if I mentioned it, but their show is called Flip or Flop. So... They were using Instagram to promote their business. So when Tarek sent an audition tape to HGTV, producers there were already a little familiar with the photogenic couple and their work. In 2012, the couple signed a contract with HGTV. And in April, 2013, Flipper Flop premiered, eventually becoming one of the best rated shows on the network. On the marriage front, the couple had struggled with infertility, having a first baby in 2010 with the help of IVF treatments. But after Flipper Flop premiered, something weird and also miraculous happened. A nurse happened to be watching one day and noticed a lump in Tarek's neck. It concerned her enough that she reached out to the show's production company to urge Tarek to get it looked at. It was stage two thyroid cancer, which he was successfully treated for. But shout out to nurse Ryan Reed of Texas for not only seeing something, but going the extra mile to say something.
0: Can we just shout out to all nurses out there really doing the work? Thanks, nurses. Yep. We know who gets it done.
1: Yep, that's true. But just months later, Tarek learned that he had testicular cancer. This diagnosis they chose to keep private at the time. I mean, this is season one of their television show, and they have a baby, and just like, oof. Like, that is just a whole lot of stuff. Undergoing multiple cancer treatments in a year took a toll on the couple's marriage, although they were able to have a second baby in 2015, from genetics that Tarek had banked ahead of treatment, Alicia, you're a fan of HGTV, and I admit that I found myself enjoying their show quite a bit with you back when we had our
0: television hooked up. You've mentioned it again. It's mindless. It's kind of low stakes. Mm-hmm. You get some good ideas. There's you get pretty to stuff. See different. I'm into There's real Pretty estate. people, sure. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Their chemistry is real, and there is clearly a lot of trust between them, but there's something a little therapeutic in watching a mostly happy couple hit eye-rolling stage with each other when it comes to the nitty-gritty details of, say, what a bathroom design should be. I recall one episode where they just kind of threw up their hands and each took a bathroom, ending up with two hugely different but both very eye-catching designs. I can also recall Christina generally favoring pricier materials knowing that will increase the sale price, with Tarek often being like, but the comps! We can't out-price the comps! So,
0: <laughs> it's always about the comps. It's
1: always about the comps. <laughs> so the couple's conflict was a little built into the form of the show itself, right? Then, in May of 2016, 11 Orange County Police Department deputies descended on the El Musa home after a call about a, quote, possibly suicidal male with a gun. Oh, God. Yeah, there was a helicopter, too. According to reports, Tarek had, quote, run out his back door, jumped over his back fence, and walked northbound into the hiking trails of the Chino Hills State Park after uh, a friend who was in the house saw him get his handgun, where it was safely stored in a safe. Whatever was going on, Tarek returned safely and told police he had no intention of hurting himself and took the gun for protection and to, quote, blow off steam. Can you just, like, go into a state park in California and, and just shoot things stuff? I don't I didn't think those were the rules I but I have a feeling that's not anyway so clearly things were not going great by this point like there were there were clearly problems happening and indeed in December of 2016 they announced that after months of counseling they had decided to separate to quote reevaluate the future of our marriage there were reports they had actually been separated since May, which perhaps sent Tarek out into the park with a gun, or perhaps that incident was a last straw event that made them both see that it was time. And so it was that in January of 2017, People magazine greeted the world with the headline, Flip or Flops, Tarek El Moussa Files for Divorce from Wife Christina, noting that Tarek was requesting spousal support, which is interesting. Really. Mm-hmm. Friends speaking anonymously said there was never any infidelity, and the couple had stated in their December announcement that they intended to continue working together, aside from the TV show, which now is multiple TV shows like they have other reality shows now. Um, they also do seminar like real estate seminars, which, I'm sure are scintillating, <laughs> and definitely worth the money. Certainly. Hmm. Christina. Told Good Morning America that February, Tarek and I met 10 years ago at work and we went through a market crash. We went through cancer, infertility, and now we're going through a very public divorce. But despite everything, our primary focus is and always will be our kids. She said they remained friends, that their kids were doing really well, that they were adjusting well, and, you know, like rolling with the punches, basically. And that they had a lot of family support to kind of shield it over. She would later say that during this period, she felt like she was drowning. But hey, you know. Divorce is tough on everybody. Divorce is tough. I think we watched their first episodes after the split was announced. And there was a little uncomfortable. There was some tension. It was a little awkward. But they soldiered on. In November of 2017, Christina began dating Ant Anstead a TV presenter originally from England who had also divorced in 2017. So they were probably in similar moments in their life. And sometimes that won't work out in the long run. And in fact, they married in December of 2018. That was really fast. Had a baby together the following year and announced their divorce in 2020. So she has been engaged to realtor Josh Hall since September of 2021. These two really dig the real estate game, don't they? I guess they do. Tarek started dating selling sunsets Heather Ray Young right. in 2019. And they had a big wedding in October 2021 that was covered by a Discovery Plus film crew for
0: Tarek and Heather, the Big I Do. No, was that a thing?
1: It was apparently a thing. Oh, God. There was an ugly incident on the flipper flop set in the summer of 2021 that was reported by TMZ. Apparently, Tarek completely lost his shit and started berating Christina in front of the crew, telling her that he made her and that she's a washed up loser and that he enjoys watching her fail. And then TMZ says that he yelled,
0: look at me, look at me, look at me. It's called winning. You're the goofo who wears flip flops to a construction site, man. Well, maybe you take a seat.
1: Counterpoint, because he apparently closed out by screaming, the world knows you're crazy. (gasps) One of us maybe he looks like it in that situation he had apparently been triggered by her recent public admission that she had smoked toad venom to (laughs) forgot about the toad venom try to get some psychedelic assistance with extreme anxiety that she had been experiencing and i'm trying to think of why she might have been experiencing extreme anxiety (laughs) that kind of workplace woo meanwhile as noted both have other shows in the hgtv universe but they've continued with Flip or Flop. It's into season 10 now until dun, dun,
0: dun. the
1: surprise announcement on social media just this week that next week's episode would be the last. Bittersweet news to announce, Christina wrote on Instagram. It's the end of an era. Next week's episode of Flip or Flop will be the series finale. The reporting on this has been a little weird There's an account that says the experience is too intimate for the exes and their respective partners don't love it, while others say the writing has been on the wall for a long time and kind of point to that 2021 incident. I don't think this is a particularly trashy tale, so I'm just going to award the couple one large construction-sized dumpster, which hopefully they will not choose to set on fire down the road and... Depending on your view of open concept floor plans, maybe HGTV is the one who deserves trash cans here.
0: Somebody's burning down the house.
1: Like, I I grew up with the understanding that there was a thing called a load-bearing wall. So I'm not sure what is holding up all of these houses these days. It's a
0: real question, right?
1: <laughs> what, what do you do? Do you,
0: like, just
1: put a column in to hold the... Like, I don't... Anyway, I like open concept floor plans... Judiciously.
0: Well, sad we're not going to be able to see any more on Flipper Flop. It was a good run. It was a Christina good run. Christina and Tarek.
1: It's been a fun show. I'm sure they're going to rerun it for it's. It is a hit show. It's it really performs well for the network. So I have a feeling it's not actually going away. They just won't be making new
0: ones. No more flipping. No more flopping.
1: <laughs> Put on some boots, dude.
0: We <laughs> you are will going to step on a nail. Thank you, Stacy. That was very well done. You're welcome. We're gonna flip, and be back on the oh, flop yeah. with a different kind of divorce tale. Well done. Back in a minute, y'all.
1: Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they
0: married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians,
1: If you have been thinking about your financial situation, if you've been
0: brewing questions you would like to ask a financial professional, if you would like some guidance on addressing debt, investing, or other general financial organization, then in the immortal lyrics of Amy Ray, I said it's time. Don't assume anything. Just just
1: go, 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 go to OaktreeGroup.net. There you will find the contact information for three holistic financial planners that have been working together for over 17 years. Kelly, Eileen, and Ellen will tailor a financial
0: strategy for your unique goals and circumstances. You can also give them a call at 770-319-1700 to schedule your free one-hour consultation. They would never use your years to psych you out.
1: Again, the phone number is 770-319-1700. And the website is www.theoaktreegroup.net. Go, go, go. Alicia, you have the story of a screen legend who had a much more difficult uh, life than many people
0: realize, correct? Correct. Today, my trashy angels, I'm bringing you the trashy divorces of Joan Crawford. Wow. We covered Joan's first marriage and divorce in depth all the way back in Season 6, Episode 6. There's no need to listen to that one today, friends, as this story is going to cover the whole trashy arc of the marital loves and woes of the legendary Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford will celebrate her birthday March 23rd coming up this week. Hey, happy birthday. And it was a perfect time to do this particular episode because our friend Dominique at Breakfast at Dominique's... Mm -hmm is releasing her Joan Crawford custom coffee blend mm-hmm. on Joan's birthday this week. Very smart. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. If you dig delicious custom coffee blends, I encourage you to see the great things that Breakfast at Dominique's is doing. There has not been an old Hollywood blend that just hasn't been wonderful. Stacy, you got your beverage set. I do. For the famous and infamous Joan Crawford. I do. Four is the magic number in this one. Okay. Four is the number I need you to have in your head as we go through this. Joan will have four husbands, three divorces, and almost a life in four different stages. Interesting. Let's get into it. Lucille Faye Lasore was born in who really knows what year. <laughs> Maybe 1904, but Joan lies about it for ages. Right. She's born in 1906. If the census of the family is believable, you can decide for yourself how reliable the narrators are in this story. Okay. Lucille is born March 23rd. She's an Aries. And I don't know if you're going to find a truer Aries than Lucille Fay, who will insist by going by Billy hmm. as a child. Interesting. Billy is born in San Antonio, Texas. She's the third of three children. Her parents are Thomas and Anna. Joan's older sister, Daisy, passes away before she's born. Mm. She will have an older brother, Hal. Okay. Daddy Thomas leaves before the baby's even born, leaving the family destitute. And Mama Anna is like, I'm out of here, San Antonio. There's way too many of my husband's relatives around this place to make things pretty uncomfortable for me. So mom is going to move to Lawton, Oklahoma. Oh, and will hop in we'll, Lawton mm-hmm, hop in Lawton and is going to hook up with a dude named Henry Kaysen. I don't know if they get married. Maybe they're common law married. This is about 1908, but mama Anna and Henry Kaysen are shacking up. Stepdad Henry using air quotes around the stepdad part does run the local theater and opera house in Lawton, Oklahoma and lets Billy hang out and gets her kind of into the scene Billy wants to be a dancer. Billy and her brother Hal are going to make shows and charge neighborhood kids to see them. Excellent. They're kind of a hit. Unfortunately, though, Billy's going to slice her foot on broken glass one day, which is going to require three surgeries. She will spend a year and a half recuperating with no school, and doctors tell her mother she's probably never going to walk normally again.
1: Wow. Medicine back in the day.
0: Joan's dancing career probably is not going to develop as she wished. But Joan will somehow credit, again using air quotes, stepdad Henry Kaysen for her great start in life. But things don't actually go that great for the family. I'm going to let y'all be the judge of that. As far as I can make out, in 1916 or so, Billy comes across a big-ass bag of gold in the family basement. Uh, Wait, what? A big-ass bag of gold.
1: So she's 10 or 12, depending on... Okay.
0: Teenagers, yeah. And if I was a teenager, I would naturally be curious what a big-ass bag of gold was doing in our basement. Same. Also, I'd be pretty happy. (laughs) So Billy, you know, starts asking around town, which gets the authorities involved, which slings stepdad Henry up on Uh, embezzlement charges, mm -hmm. which are... Dismissed. So he, he, was not, he didn't have a sideline as a gold miner? <laughs> he has a sideline as something even more terrible. Um. The charges against Henry are dismissed, but the scandal does do two things. First, it gets the family booted out of town. They leave Lawton, Oklahoma, and are going to go to Kansas City. Second, Billy, again, 11-ish, 12-ish, yeah. preteenish yeah, ish is only known Henry Kaysen as her father. Is told by her older bully, mean, mean brother Hal, that Henry is not her father. Mm. Not cool. What happens here is actually even worse because Billy and her stepfather are going to be sexually involved from the time that she was 11. He is grooming her. Mm-hmm. He is gaslighting her. Mm-hmm. He is sexually abusing her. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Joan, in later biographies, will say she was fine with this. I knew what I was doing. She didn't. Which, if you look at them, like, this is Joan's imago. I know. When that is how you survive as a child, Mm -hmm. people give Joan a lot of grief. Like, oh, she slept her way to the top. Now, Joan's doing what Joan knows how to do to survive. But Joan will tell her mother. And Mama Anna will blame her daughter not her lazy half-ass husband, and it is off to Catholic boarding school for young Billy.
1: Yeah, all kinds of bad incentives there, just... mm.
0: Henry Kaysen is going to pay for boarding school until mom has had enough of Henry, and then Henry's out. But Henry's not paying anymore for boarding school, and Billy is going to a school called St. Agnes, which is Catholic, and nuns. So she goes from a paying student... To a working student. Oh. Which is cleaning, washing, and cooking for 30 rich girls. I was gonna say, I bet yeah. when you're the poor girl. I bet that's great. So let's just talk about some pretty intense things happening in a traumatic childhood. She's groomed as a child for sexual abuse. Then she's working in an adult job as a high schooler. Billy is constantly made fun of. She's got tremendously deep insecurity. It's not that hard to come up with this picture. When Billy's about 13, she is somehow going to run into Henry Kaysen again, and he will resume abusing her for a hot minute. But he will also die this same year, 1919. Good riddance. Billy's 13. Mama Anna's hooked up with a new dude named Harry Huff and is running a laundromat, which Billy works at, which will leave other scars in her life. Billy's going to head off to another school for a while, but because there's another man now around Anna, and this time Billy goes to Rockingham Academy, but by the age of 15, Billy's like, I want to dance for real. I'm done. I'm finished with this. Okay, so the foot, like the foot. It does heal, Yeah, Yeah, the foot surgeries did not actually, okay. She'll be an actress, not a dancer, but yeah. Okay. She's remarkable Mm -hmm. character, Joan. Billy's going to get a job as a sales clerk at Klein's department store, but that sucks too <laughs> for her. But this is where we get the baseline for 1906 for her birth date. Billy will enroll in Stevens College in 1922 when she does giving her birth year as 1906. There's not any reason for her to lie at this point mm-hmm. in her life. College goes great for like four months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Billy's like, no, nope, I'm out. 1920, not for, me. Not for her. Hmm. By 1923, she is doing dance contests and trying to survive. She's moved to the big city of Springfield. <laughs> Billy will get a role in a show, and it doesn't do great. And soon, she's back with her hateful mother at the laundromat, but not for long. Billy's gonna fall in love. This time with Eddie Smith, fast Eddie. <laughs> He's one of her dance partners, and maybe they make some peep show kind of films to scrounge up money. Ooh. These movies may come back to haunt Billy in the future. Oh, that sucks. Billy's going to wind up in Chicago dancing at a strip club and getting arrested for prostitution. Wow. It's all looking pretty bad, but things are about to turn around for our fair heroine. Mostly by the... Trauma that has been laid down in the weapons that she knows how to use. In 1924, it is off to Detroit, where Billy is spotted by J.J. Schubert, and she's offered a spot on Broadway. Hmm. Billy is now using her birth name of Lucille LeSueur, and this role will lead to another role, and then she's spotted by Hollywood executive Harry Rapp, who is in New York to scout... Quote unquote, which is really how do I find sweet, desperate, easy honeys mm-hmm. to make promises to. But this one actually works out. There is a casting couch. There is a promise of a contract, which miraculously enough does happen. Lucille now is going to get a six-month contract for $75 a week. She will borrow $400 and is going to land in Hollywood January 1st, 1925, and it is on but let me clarify. <laughs> Lucille Lesore has landed in Hollywood and she is met coming off the train and the lady that meets her calls her Lesore. Oh, God. Not Lucille Lesore. Lucille. Hi, Lucille Lesore. Because she's trashy. She has an accent. She has frizzy hair. She wears too much makeup. She's nowhere near the polished shell that she will become as we work through the story. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things I think that will surprise you the most about Joan Crawford. In her early films, when she's just starting out, she's so sweet and so soft and not quite the mm-hmm. picture that you have in your head from the fullness of time. Lucille Sore, not messing around. She is tough and raw and ambitious, and she is going to work that six-month contract for all it is worth. She works as a body double for Norma Shearer, and she's going to go on a lot of dates with a lot of studio executives, which is what you do Mm -hmm. in a six-month contract, but have you met our girl? She's going to make it or be (laughs) damned trying, and this is Billy's dream. She's been wanting this her whole life, and she's going to live it there's a magazine contest that will rename her from Lucille Lesore to Joan Crawford, which now Joan Crawford, Billy, hates because she thinks it sounds way too much like crawfish. Oh my God. But alas, voters. What is it, Bodie McBoderson? Bo- Never trust voters. Bodie McBoatface. There you go. By 1926, Joan Crawford is on the list of baby stars hmm. that are setting Hollywood on fire. That list includes Mary Astor. That list includes also Fay Ray. She's gonna make her dreams come true. Joan is come hell or high water. More roles come, and it turns out that Joan is just waiting on the movie lot in 1927, where Joan will meet the first of her four husbands. Hmm. Setting up the premise here: four husbands, every marriage lasts four years. Oh well, okay, mm-hmm. all right. Four is the magic or non-magic number within this tale. So maybe she just found an alternate college. <laughs> Hubby number one, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. December 9th, 1909 is his birthday. He's a Sagittarius man, which on paper looks great between an Aries and a Sagittarius. Dougie Jr., his father is naturally Douglas Fairbanks Sr., swashbuckling movie star. Dougie's mom is a cotton heiress. What I need you to translate from this is that money social status are never going to be any kind of complication in dougie jr's world right he's an only child and when he's like five or six douglas fairbanks senior is having an affair with the leading actress in hollywood mary pickford la scandale. doug senior cotton heiress mama divorce when douglas jr is about nine now the tables turn in the press right because You would think, oh, Douglas Sr., how dare you scandalize your wife with this divorce? But now the press is rooting for Douglas Fairbanks Sr. and And Mary Mary Pickford. Pickford. Gross.
1: (laughs) Which, I mean, I understand. Like, I think we even
0: have that these days, but like, also gross. The spin of the narrative of the press in Hollywood is remarkable. Dougie's mom is going to get remarried and mostly he's going to live with her. Throughout their numerous homes in the world, including New York, California, Paris, and London. Doug's into sports and art. His father, Douglas Sr., is not really in to Douglas Jr. Douglas Jr. will say in the New York Times piece by Ron Alexander, again, all references that we use in our stories, y'all are on trashydivorces.com. Douglas Jr. will say I was a shy, awkward sort of boy, and my father's frequent absences from home, along with my hero worship for him, made me even shyer. I had no desire to be a personality like my father, nor was I equipped to be one. I was determined to be my own man, although having the Fairbanks name did make it easier to get into an office to see someone. In the mid 1920s, when Douglas Jr. is about 14 or so, he'll begin to act, and he's going to work steadily, just in bit part, like just hanging out at the studio, which is going to have Dougie on the movie lot set in 1927. Uh, gotcha. Where an 18-year-old Douglas Fairbanks Jr. will meet a 20-something Joan Crawford. Disputed. <laughs> Joan Crawford meets Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and she hates him. That guy's stuffy. Auspicious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Not much happens with the two of them when they meet. They're not sparks flying. But Then Joan goes to see him in her performance and she is blown away. Hmm. She'll write him this really saucy telegram with all this flattery about it and how great you were and voila an affair is born. Maybe Joan thinks that like dating him has got to be better than being passed around the movie lot. Sure. He's probably an advantage name wise. He's certainly handsome as anything. And the thing is though, Junior's not really experienced with girls. He's like 18. She's whatever way more experienced sexually than him at 21, 22 Quote from Joan Crawford In real estate, they say location, location, location. In our relationship, it was sex, sex, sex. That's what we had in common. So there you go. Dougie Jr. likes learning and Joan uh, likes teaching. I and bet. It's all fun and games, younger stud and all that. And no one's like too serious about it. But maybe, just maybe, he could be a step up on the path that Joan has set for herself. Sure. These two could not be more different. I want you to think, best comparison for it, Andy and Blaine in Pretty in Pink. Joan sews her own clothes. He's a pretty boy playing fast on the other side of the tracks. She's been cleaning after 30 of her peers since she was a teenager. He's had great schools and lots of wealth and a movie star father. And Joan hasn't hardened yet, if that's the right word. She's young. She loves sex. She's in Hollywood. He's young. They love it all. Opposites attract. By 1928, the two are seriously dating with many feelings about the relationship from the adults in their life. Such as? Well, they all think Joan is fast, trashy, common. She's trailer trash. She's nowhere good enough for Doug Jr. Cotton heiress mama hates all of it. Doug Sr., for his part, isn't that ruffled. He's like, boy needs to sew his wild oats.
1: You would think the cotton heiress would be like, oh, she sews her own clothes, eh?
0: (laughs) No, that's not what (laughs) Mama mama did. Mary Pickford, (laughs) Mm -hmm. new stepmother, the queen of Hollywood, is like, oh, you have got to be kidding me. I've seen your type before, and you're a gold digger. To no avail, though. Douglas Jr. will pop the question on New Year's Eve to Joan In 1928, six months later, June the 3rd, 1929, begin your four-year clock. (laughs) These two get married. It happens in New York. They honeymoon at the Algonquin Hotel. The press goes wild. Mm -hmm. Young love is part of the headline, but also the other part of the headline, Joan Crawford is a cradle robber. Joan Crawford is a gold digger. Oh, wow. Joan Crawford is most assuredly not our kind. Oh, wow. Now I'm going to tell you, Joan gets something from every husband. Let me rephrase that. I think Joan and her husbands both do mutually get something from each other during every marriage. When it comes to Douglas Fairbanks Jr., he is going to, A, number one, adore her. She walks on water. But he's also going to help her with elocution, Mm -hmm. a little bit of polish, smoothing out some of that roughness and that from the country kind of vibe Mm -hmm. that Joni has. Joan, for her part, is going to help Douglas Fairbanks Jr. become a little bit more assertive, Mm -hmm. teach him things about the world that he may otherwise not know because of his privileged upbringing.
1: Right. Sounds like this is also sort of an opportunity for him to become his own man, to chart his own course. That's
0: exactly it. Contra his family's expectations. Joan and Dougie Jr. buy a home in Brentwood. They call it El Jodo. It's the first initials of her name and the first initials of his name. Okay.
1: Which, because his father and Mary Pickford had the... the Mm -hmm. Pickfair. Pickfair.
0: Okay, so maybe not entirely his own course. (laughs) Well, they're going (laughs) to try to make their home into Pickfair, kind of. Joan's going to live in this home for about 25 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Joan and Douglas Jr.'s prints are embedded in concrete together forever in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater. MGM is right now eyeing Joan Crawford because we're in the period of silent films to talkies. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Joan's been working on her elocution. Got that accent handled. So when it comes to the in-law front, Joan Crawford's going to bide her time. She will eventually make it into that famous living room at Pickfair but it's going to take a minute. It's kind of a big deal to her to want to get there. But once she gets there, she's always uncomfortable. She's shy. She's awkward. She'll bring her knitting with her. Isn't that hard to imagine? Mm-hmm. Le- legendary Joan Crawford that we know of now sitting in a corner at pick fair with her knitting because she's awfully shy and embarrassed. Yeah. There is that one night where Douglas Jr. and Joan make out in the screening room Douglas Sr. wasn't real happy about that one. There is a terrific love letter from Douglas Fairbanks Jr. to Joan Crawford from Vanity Fair in July of 1930. We covered that in the original episode of this, but maybe stay tuned to Love Letter's podcast this week. You might be hearing that again a little sooner than you know. Dougie is so in love. He's so in love. And Joan, by 1930, 1931, is potentially a little bored. Her visions and dreams of how marriage would be maybe is not as fulfilling as she had anticipated. And she's really landing in Hollywood and maybe looking for a little more. 1931 is an enormous year for Joan. She'll make five films that year and also begin an affair that's going to take down her marriage. (laughs) The affair with Clark Gable. Ah, yes. So Joan Crawford and Clark Gable will make eight films together in their respective careers And the two have an affair that transcends throughout a number of both of their marriages. (laughs) Clark is going to come to Hollywood about the same time as Joan Crawford. We've covered his story in a previous Mm -hmm. Trashy Divorce. They do have similar backstories, Joan and Clark. They both come up from nothing. They both will marry into some kind of credibility in their first round of marriage for Hollywood. Clark, if you remember, has come to Hollywood in 1924 with his acting coach and future first wife, right. Josephine Dillon, who is 17 years older than Clark. That marriage lasts five, six years, leaving Clark Gable a free man by 1930, just in the nick of time to begin a hot and heavy affair with Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford will say her affair with Clark Gable was sublime. She'll call him the only man I ever loved. Hmm. There is an intense and serious chemistry between these two. But the secret of the liaison makes it much more fun for both of them. They're still carrying on when Clark Gable is going to marry his second wife, Maria Langham. Clark and Maria remain married until 1939, although it's unhappily for the last few years Clark, Gable only agrees to do Gone with the Wind because it will give him enough cash to divorce Maria Langham right. to marry Carol Lombard. Ring it a bell. Doesn't stop the affair with Joan Crawford, though. <laughs> so even like 1930, Joan and Clark are hot for each other. And in 1931, when their film comes out, you would have to be willfully ignorant not to see that these two are in heat. <laughs> Their affair will continue. This is the early part of their affair. Throughout 1932, Louis B. Mayer finds out. Sends Douglas Jr. and Joan on a second honeymoon that goes terribly. The studio is not happy about any of this nonsense going down. When Joan comes back from that second honeymoon that is a flat-out disaster, Joan leaves for her next film role and she will ask her husband not to come along with her. Joan is checked out. She wants a divorce in 1932. The movie grand hotel comes out. Joan is in it. Her star officially lands. She is in no need any longer of really Douglas jr. But don't feel too bad for Douglas jr. Because he's cheating too. Mm. They both are when they go on that second honeymoon, He's the one that's cheating on her on the second honeymoon. It's all terrible. Okay. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. will say his parents help along the end of the marriage. Their divorce is final May 12th, 1933, four years. And the couple will remain friendly throughout their lives. Interesting. They leave with no hard feelings. Joan got her career. Douglas got a father back through it. They speak very highly of each other. That's good. Again, the trade-offs and the things that you learn in relationships, but Douglas Fairbanks Jr., husband number one, four years out the door. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. will marry again, remaining happily married to wife number two until her death in 1998. Wow. Three kids, eight grandkids, ten great-grandkids. Dougie Jr. accomplishes a lot in his long life. He will organize the Franco-British War Relief Effort. FDR will appoint him as an envoy to South America in 1941. And this is not true, but the rumor about it is it's his rear end in those infamous naked man photos involved in the infamous divorce of Lady Colin Campbell from across the pond in 1963. Hmm. It is not his butt in those pictures, but allegedly there's a rumor. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. passes away at the age of 90 in the year 2000.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: Goodness. Let's go ahead and move our time machine back now to 1933. Okay. Single. Single Joan Crawford. Well, even in The Affair with Clark Gable, single Joan Crawford's attentions have turned to who will be her husband number two, Franchotone. Stanislaus Pascal Franchotone was born February 27th, 1905 in Niagara Falls, New York. Pisces, man. Franchot is from a wealthy family. His father is a pioneer in electrochemistry. Okay. Yeah. Franchot's mother is a wealthy socialite with prominent family. So kid is well-educated, all the trappings of that kind of life. Franchot will attend Cornell University where he discovers his love of acting. (laughs) And then to Rennes University in France. He's a smart dude. He's talented, too. He's appearing on Broadway by 1929. Wow. Franchot is going to head to Hollywood in 1932, and Paramount Studios doesn't really prove to be the studio for him, but MGM will be. We're on his second film in late 1932. He will meet his future bride, mm-hmm. Joan Crawford. Where Joan Crawford's part in this movie is actually written in at the last minute. Not because of him, it's just what happened. It's an all-male cast. And she gets kind of the scored in. Yeah, that. the studio's like, hey, this is kind of a sausage fest here. Let's throw Joan Crawford in the mix. <laughs> but the heart wants what the heart wants. Joan is coming off the divorce from Douglas Jr., right? Single lady's gonna single. But sparks are flying between these two, and he's handsome and dreamy and a great actor. And she is a Hollywood legend or well on her way to becoming one. From 1932 to 1936, within the time of this four-year marriage, Joan Crawford is one of the top ten money-making stars in Hollywood. It is well, all happening for her. I feel like I should have made an electrochemistry joke while you were talking about their sparks. Oh, well. <laughs> By the late 1930s, Joan is one of the highest-paid actresses in Hollywood. The 30s were a great time for Joan Crawford. And Tone, he's no kid like Douglas Jr., Nor is he like her lover, Clark Gable, Clark and Joan are so much alike. Franchot? Whoa, different kind of breed altogether of a man. Franchot will be a mentor to Joan in kind of the same way like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was. Tone will help Joan study classical drama and innovative acting techniques. Uncomfortable maybe a little awkward. All of our lovers here, including Clark Gable, Joan Crawford, and Franchot Tone, are going to star in a movie together the following year. Wow. Maybe a little uncomfortable. But Joan is falling in love, albeit in baby steps after the divorce. And Joan and Franchot, you can see the chemistry. They will star in four films together during their courtship. They steadily date, and now the press is like, okay, are y'all gonna get married or what? Now we're waiting. Bringing us to the year 1935, where Franchotone is loaned to Warner Brothers to make a little film with Betty Davis, who is love struck by the dreamy actor. Joan Crawford doesn't like this too much. She gets mm-hmm. a little jealous, and at this point, she will finally accept Franchotone's proposal. Which begins the long-standing feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford? They say a lot about each other. We're gonna follow up on that in Dumpster Dive this week, but I do want to mention this one: Betty Davis will say about Joan Crawford that she slept with every male star at MGM except Lassie. <laughs> Saucy. Joan and Francue will marry October eleventh, nineteen thirty-five. You may begin your four-year clock now. Tick. In 1936, Joan Crawford's doing radio things with the encouragement of her husband. So for Redneck Girl with a voice that was unpolished, she's really kind of going out of her comfort zone here. At this point, she's had an 11-year career. She's made over 40 films. Think about that. Yeah, She is a star. And her new husband is getting supporting roles and is not quite the top billing of the star of his wife, even though they're going to make seven films together over the course of their relationship. Franchot begins to care less about his career and less about acting. And within this frustration, he begins caring less about all of that, but also increasing his consumption of alcohol. It does happen. Another not fun pastime that Franchot has taken up is taking out his frustrations on Joan's face and body. Mm. She will suffer verbal, physical, and emotional abuse in this marriage. She will also suffer several miscarriages as well. Wow. Now, by the end of 1937, Joan is box office poison. So for the previous four years, 32 to 36, going so great, this marriage isn't going great for her. Her career is not going great. I do have a wonderful quote from her from 1937. <laughs> this is an interview from the Los Angeles Times. Joan Crawford says, I never go outside unless I look like Joan Crawford, the movie star. If you want to see the girl next door, go next door. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> in 1937, again, big year, Joan is going to have her first affair in her marriage with Franchotone. Tone, And this one is with... Spencer Tracy, Hmm. who's kind of a ladies' man. We think of him as very settled in with his long-term love, Catherine Hepburn. But there were some other ladies, too, including Ingrid Bergman, Loretta Young, but also Joan Crawford in 1937. The two have a brief affair during the filming of a movie called Mannequin. Joan Crawford will say about Spencer Tracy, At first, I felt honored to be working with Spence, and we even whooped it up a little off the set, but he turned out to be a real bastard. <laughs> I do want to make a mention here, summer of 1937, also kind of a fun time. Joan Crawford is a friend of Gloria Morgan Vanderbilt Sr., the mother of Gloria Vanderbilt. Joan is also friends with Marino O'Sullivan. So in the summer of 1937, Gloria Vanderbilt escapes her Aunt Gertrude's house and comes to Hollywood with her mother, who is hanging out with her best friends, Joan Crawford and Marino Sullivan. So, holy cats, Gloria Vanderbilt's going to recall hanging out with her mother's glamorous friends. They all go to San Simeon together. Hmm. Yeah. Gloria Vanderbilt's Aunt Gertrude is so mad about this freewheeling Hollywood nonsense that you've infested my 14-year-old niece with that Gloria Vanderbilt is going to be sent to Miss Porter's that next fall and will not come back out to California for a few more years in which she will meet failed used car salesman and part-time mafioso Pat DeSico, Again, spiderwebs. We're going to be getting into all of Gloria Vanderbilt in Done and Done this week and that custody battle that happens with Aunt Gertrude but y'all may want to check that out if you like a little high society and true crime with your trashy. Back to it. Joan and Franchot are trying, I guess, to salvage a marriage that will be unsalvageable. More unsuccessful pregnancies, increased drinking and abuse, and apparently the thing that is the last straw for Joan Crawford, she'll visit him on set one day to find her husband being pleasured by a young woman in his dressing room. Hmm. And although Joan has cheated on him plenty, sure, it sounds like there were a lot of issues. Well, Joan doesn't cheat with anybody unworthy, like a young teenage, like, no, she cheats with big, important people. She's insulted at the caliber of who is pleasuring him in his dressing room. That's what sets her off. (laughs) How dare you? After this divorce, Joan is quoted saying, if anyone catches me getting married again, they ought to give me a good sock in the jaw. She's mad about it. (laughs) Franchot and Joan are divorced April 11th, 1939. You guessed it. Four years. Four years. Few follow-ups from this one, though. As a very nice trashy divorces gift, Franchotone gives Joan Crawford a gold ring with a 104-carat rectilinear amethyst Designed by Raymond C. Yard, this is one of Joan's favorite designers of jewelry. She owns several of Yard's pieces. Nice gift if you can get it, I suppose, in the divorce. A little parting gift. Franchotone will marry three more times in his life, but he's single by the end, where in the 1960s, Franchotone is in a wheelchair, and Joan will be his caretaker throughout the end of his life. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. They stay close. That's fascinating, yeah. Not a happy marriage, but she will take care of him in his last days. Franchotone passes away at the age of 63 in 1968, and she will say about this marriage, sensitive husbands don't like second billing. I don't believe Franchot ever for a moment resented the fact I was a star. Possibly he resented Hollywood's refusal to let him forget it. There was never a doubt in my mind that his talent was greater than mine. So where are we? 1939? we got a few more dishy bits here. Late 1930s. Maybe something a little worse happens in the late 1930s. The former child star and now the 17-year-old young actor Jackie Cooper is using Joan's badminton court, where one day, at least as Jackie Cooper recalls it, He snuck a peek up Joan's dress and makes a move, and Joan closes the blinds. Joan is 34. She is twice his age and an adult. He is 17. Make of that what you will. You do hear stories over time where Joan is going to use sex for control purposes, maybe to give leading roles to new dalliances, maybe using these trysts to gain control of parts or power, or some aspect of the film that she was involved in. We have another little dalliance from 1939 1940. Greg Boucher, we've come across him in our Trashy Divorces saga. He represented Big Nancy in her divorce from Frank oh. Sinatra. Mm-hmm. He was dating Joan Crawford until Joan Crawford finds out that he's also been keeping time with Joan's latest 18 year old co star, Lana Turner. Oof. Not cool. Joan Crawford kind of bullies Lana Turner about it. She'll tell her, it's me, truly loves. He just hasn't figured out how to get rid of you yet. Mm -hmm. Lana is going to, bless her heart, let all this doubt settle in, and she's going to pull the fool's rush in number with the next guy who comes along, Artie Shaw, where after three dates, Lana Turner will become Artie Shaw's wife number three of eight. Spider webs again all covered in previous episodes. Joan is going to stay single here, doing whatever she's doing romantically from 1939 to about 1942. In 1940, Joan will adopt her first child. She's tired of waiting for motherhood. And if you, dear listener, are here to be filled in on the mother and trashy child allegations, I encourage you to subscribe to patreon.com slash trashy divorces. I have a whole follow-up that I'm going to cover in Dumpster Dive this week on Wednesday. Right. This is the mommy dearest situation, yeah. Played by Faye Dunaway. Hmm. He recovered not too long ago. But this story, honestly, in this episode is already super long, and I'm trying to stick to our theme podcast brand of trashy divorces. Mm -hmm. I will add in this response from Joan about the enormous amount of writing about her and that she imposed perfectionism onto her children and that she was overly strict. To all of these assertions, Joan Crawford will say, I have tried to provide my children with what I didn't have. Constructive discipline, a sense of security, a sense of sharing. Sloppiness has never been tolerated in our home, nor has rudeness. They're going into a world that isn't easy. A world where unless you are self-sufficient and strong, you can be destroyed. Never a lady to waste words, Joan. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and get us to husband number three. Guess how many years that one's going to last? Is it four? You got it. Poor Joan. (laughs) This husband is Philip Terry, who was born Frederick Henry Corman. His actor name will be Philip Terry. He's born March 7th. 1909 in San Francisco, California. Another Pisces man. Hmm. He's an only child. This one's father is a chemical engineer within the oil fields where Philip Terry, I'm just going to call him this, will begin working after high school and decides that maybe the oil fields are not for me after all and decide to go to college. Philip Terry eventually transfers to Stanford where he becomes a track and football star Hmm. and also discovers his love, Oh, the theater. This is where Frederick Henry Corman will change his name to Philip Terry. He's headed to New York, but after a little while, that's not really his scene. So he's going to head across the pond over to London, Hmm. where he will study at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Wow. RADA Mm -hmm. in 1933 at the young age of 24. After two years, Philip Terry is back in the States working at CBS Radio as a dramatic player. He does a lot of roles with Shakespeare. Here, like so many others, he's discovered by MGM. He aces the screen test, and it is off to Hollywood in the late 1930s, where Philip Terry is mostly playing bit parts and extra roles, including a bit part in Mannequin, starring Joan Crawford and Spencer Tracy All right, in 1937. When Joan was married to Francho Tone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Philip Terry bails out on MGM because he's not getting cast. So he's going to skip on over to Paramount in 1941. It is in 1942 at Paramount that Philip Terry meets Joan Crawford. There's Again, I guess. I mean, if they were in a movie together, they would met before. I mean, he would have certainly known who she was. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she would have acknowledged him. For sure. Apparently there is a press agent that brings him for a dinner at her house. That dinner goes so well, they date for six months and will marry July 20th, 1942, at Joan's attorney's office. Not very romantic. Hmm. At this point, Joan is a single mom with one kid. And Philip Terry probably looks a lot like stability and a father. And the two look gorgeous together and they say they have great sex. It's ideal. Both leave Paramount for other studios. Joan goes to Warner Brothers, Terry goes to RKO. And at this point in their careers, they're not working a lot. So they are having a great time nesting, being parents, being mom and dad and making a home and a family. They decide to adopt another child. This is terrible who gets reclaimed by his birth mother. Oh god after the adoption, and the birth mother's going to sell that kid again, like on the, it's terrible. Again, we have a whole follow-up on Dumpster Dive this week. By 1944, though, two years into the marriage, career trajectory kind of changes. Joan gets Mildred Pierce, whoa, and Philip is going to start in The Lost Weekend. His Lost Weekend wins Best Picture for 1946, This is when Joan, that same year, wins Best Actress for Mildred Pierce. Wow. So Joan's... Big year for them. Totally embracing this new, like, okay, now I'm a little bit middle-aged. I don't need to play on. She embraces this role and kills it. Joan is making things happen. And I think this quote from 1945 is pretty poignant when it comes to Joan Crawford's point of view in life. You have to be self-reliant and strong to survive in this town. Otherwise, you will be destroyed. It's from an interview in Hedda Hopper's Hollywood in 1945. And Joan is back on top. And Philip Terry is like, that's all good, babe. I can stay home. I can be a house husband, take care of the kids, because they will adopt another son. Mm -hmm. And Philip Terry becomes, much like Fran much less driven about his career. And... Not as into doing things. He's into the family and I, you know, kind of like what's happening. And Joan is not a fan of his new lifestyle choices. She's kind of bored. Even though it's nice having a dad for the kids, there will be a tremendous amount of financial compensation and the two will divorce April 25th, 1946. Four years after the marriage. The second child that they adopt will have his name changed. A trust fund is made for the child. It's not really a love match between the two. At the end of the day, Joan says about this one, a mistake, a mutual mistake. He was and is a very nice man, but we weren't made for each other. I won't say any more. She's also quoted as saying, I realized I had never loved him. I think I've owed him an apology from the first. Hmm. Just like all of our other exes, though, Joan will stay in contact and friendly with Philip Terry for the rest of their lives. Philip was not meant to be an actor. He was meant, apparently, to get in the real estate game. He's going to make a ton of cash in real estate and investments. He will remarry. He'll retire in the early 1970s. Dies in 1993 of pneumonia. Good life. Joan is single again. In 1947, she will adopt, this time, two twin girls in order to continue to embrace this mothering role. Now, for her first daughter, Christina, again, mommy dearest, having some things that are not kind to say about that relationship, these twin girls have not one bad word to say about their mother. It is a night Mm -hmm. and day contrast, and only God and the people in that house kind of knew what was going on. Joan is going to continue to Joan and remain single until husband number four, Alfred Steele. Alfred Steele, born April 24th, 1900, Taurus man. Mm. He's going to attend Northwestern University and gets into the advertising game. Mm. He has no wives. He's never been married before until Joan Crawford. He just works. He's a VP of marketing for Coca-Cola. He will eventually work his way up to become the CEO and director of the board at Pepsi Cola in 1949. Hmm. And truly Alfred Steele does amazing things for the growth of PepsiCo. Joan and Alfred marry May 10th, 1955. And the two do the thing together. This is sort of Joan's fourth act as career woman almost. If her first act was ingenue, Her second act was leading actress, third act mother, fourth act budding career woman. The two travel 100,000 miles a year together in order to create success for Pepsi. She's going with him. She'll be given a seat on the board of directors as well. Wow. So here she is, wife of a CEO and Hollywood legend. She'll attend openings and events. She is a treasure for Alfred Steele. And from this marriage, I think Joan truly gets more emotional stability than she has ever experienced. She is needed and valued. She really finds some real happiness within this union. Sadly, five days before Alfred's 59th birthday, April 19th, 1959, Alfred dies of a heart attack, leaving Joan Crawford a widow. That's really sad. It is terribly sad. Christina, the unhappy daughter, accuses Joan of killing Alfred Steele in a fit of rage, but again, only God knows what happened with those two. Two days after Alfred Steele's death, she is elected the first woman to head the board of directors for Pepsi-Cola, and Joan will remain in that position until 1973. Wow. And her work in Hollywood and just connections gets Pepsi mm-hmm. a lot of placements in films. Right. She does a hella job promoting mm-hmm. that brand. Joan Crawford, May 10th, 1977. Will at the age of God knows mm. when exactly. <laughs> will pass away at her apartment in Lenox Hill on the Upper East Side. Joan is cremated and her ashes replaced next to Alfred's at Ferncliff Cemetery in Westchester County, New York. Many luminaries attend her funeral, which is held at Campbell's Funeral Home in New York City on May 13th, but there is a memorial service that was held a few days later, May 17th, at All Souls Unitarian Church. Eulogies were provided by writer Anita Luce, actress Geraldine Brooks, actor Cliff Robertson, and director George Cukor who will direct Joan in four of her films. George Cougar will characterize Joan Crawford as the perfect image of a movie star. He will speak of her intelligence, her vitality, her will, her beauty, and will say something that he will always say when talking about Joan Crawford. The camera saw a side of her that no flesh-and-blood lover ever saw. That is Joan Crawford. Four up, four down. I say we add her into the Trashy Divorces Hall of Fame anyway. What a broad. May as well. (laughs) Quite a life. As trash cans go, I'm going to go ahead, since four seems to be the magic number, Mm -hmm. go ahead and award her four trash cans. Exactly that many. Sure. Trashy Divorces All-Star, Joan Crawford. Love it. What a story. What a story. Thanks. It I know great. that was a long one, but I didn't want to not do the entire arc justice. Sure. I know I've split another one up like that. Rita Hayworth. We've done a part one. I think I'm going to be bringing Rita Hayworth back in season 14 coming up in just a few weeks. And maybe we'll just do a longer, fully encompassed one. It was a bit rude to do part one of Rita Hayworth. And then not do part two. I'm terrible. I'll rectify that next season. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of Trashy Divorces. We're going to be back on Wednesday for our season 13 finale for Trashy Breakups. For Trashy Breakups. Mm -hmm. We can't wait to see you then. Don't forget, if you need any more Trashy in your world, you can find us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. There are also some free episodes you can check out over at our bit.ly link. Stacy, you want to give that to everybody? Yeah, that is bit.ly slash trashcandy. Just plug that into your browser. Be sure to get on that sooner than later, April 1st. No fooling. We're going to be switching out a few of those in accordance with our upcoming season 14. Can you believe it? Season 14, isn't that just mind-boggling? Hard to believe. Don't forget, friends, if you need a little bit more, High Society True Crime, you got done and done. You need a little love balm for your heart. You got love letters, too. We got some associated stuff this week coming up in both of those that is very much Trashy Divorces oriented. If you're into this, you might be into those. I think that's it. Holy cat, y'all. Have a tremendous week. Keep your hands clean all through it. Keep your hearts trashy still all the way through it. Mm-hmm wear shoes on construction sites. Definitely. Good Lord. Have a tremendous week, friends. We'll see you on Wednesday. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia.